Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Captain Ben Solomon. Solomon was the regimental dentist for the 105th Infantry Regiment rolled up under the 27th Infantry Division. And the time period we're going to talk about is in July of 1944 during the Battle of Saipan. That's in the Pacific Theater of the Second World War. So to back it off a little bit and talk about where we are in the Second World War by July of 1944, remember the United States involvement in the Second World War really kicked off or kicked off with the Japanese surprise attack at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. It took about a year until August of 42 for the United States to really get our feet back underneath us and, and start to go on the offensive. August of 42 is when we're going to land troops on Guadalcanal. That's going to be in the Southern Pacific, as we refer to it, you know, the Southern and Central Pacific, the Solomons um, of which the Solomon Islands of which Guadalcanal is a part is going to be in the South Pacific, pretty close to Australia and New Zealand. That's going to be the first major offensive action in terms of troops on the ground in the Pacific. So it's interesting looking back, we can place this timeline of months and years and kind of jump from one to the next to the next. But think about that. Think about if the United States, let's use 9-11. What if it took us a year to get into Afghanistan and start pursuing Al-Qaeda? It's hard to imagine the chomping at the bit, ready to go, that so many people in the country would have felt for that period of time. But nonetheless, by August of 42, the United States is really starting their counterattack with the end goal of toppling the Japanese empire. That period of warfare, World War I, World War II, a little bit into Korea, but we're, we're our goal is to push the Japanese empire back to their main island and potentially change the leadership structure within their country because they're so aggressive. That's the idea. They're, they're aggressively taking over territories. They're imperialistic. They're, there's what would end up being war crimes being committed all, all around the world. So we're going to push back, push back the Japanese. We're going to topple their government potentially and, and replace it. So to do that, we're looking at a strategy referred to as island hopping where we can't attack Japan from the West Coast. We can't attack Japan from Hawaii. It's too far away. So we have to get closer. And there's a ton of little islands across the Pacific, some of which are very, very important, some of which are not. A lot of times what makes an island important are going to be one of two, usually both items. It's either going to be a heavy Japanese contingent that we can't pass up. Because if you leave just like any type of warfare, if you leave an enemy element in your rear, they can do damage um, to your supply lines, to your lines of communication. And then any island that has is large enough for an airstrip that either already has an airstrip or can be accommodating of an airstrip is going to be important too. Remember, the Second World War is going to really be where air power starts to turn the tide of the fight. So as we're looking across the Pacific, there's certain islands and island groups that come to mind that pop up as being important, others that we're just going to bypass. Generally speaking, the United States is not going to bypass an area that has a strong, large Japanese garrison and an airfield. That's a recipe for disaster. But 
if it's just a Japanese held island with no airfield, we might be able to bypass it and don't have to take it and can maybe just move ahead. And all of a sudden now that Japanese island is behind American lines and they're the ones in trouble. So there's a series of islands we're looking at. The ones that are major as we talk about the Battle of Saipan, we're going to be looking at moving east to west towards Japan. You've got the Gilbert Islands, the Marshall Islands through the Central Pacific, and in the Southern Pacific, the Solomons. Now, there's going to be fighting in the Solomons for pretty much the entire war. But in the Central Pacific, we're going to be continually moving west towards Japan. Remember, we need a jumping off point to be able to eventually, the thought is, invade the Japanese mainland. We can't do that from the Gilbert Islands, but that's a stepping stone. So we move into the Marshalls. We still can't quite do it from the Marshalls, but it's a stepping stone. The next stepping stone from the Marshall Islands, the United States has their sights set on the Marianas. Marianas include a series of a series of islands that the United States will tackle in 1944. The first being Saipan. It'll be followed by Guam, Tinian, Peleliu, and Anguar. So it's a series of assaults over the course of about a, um, let's see, about a four, four to five month window in 1944. And the reason that Saipan and this island grouping is so important is if we can take those islands, we're all of a sudden within B-29 bomber range of the Japanese mainland that starts to set the stage for that. That changes the war. At that point, we're attacking the main Japanese garrison. We're attacking their homeland. Things shift at that point because we haven't really done that yet. Right. We had the Doolittle raid right after Pearl Harbor, where we, it was really more of a morale victory, an incredibly dangerous mission to fly bombers over Japan and drop a few bombs. But strategically in the scope of the war, that's not, we're not going to win the war with you know, borderline suicide bombing runs on Japan. But what we've seen start to work in the European theater of operations is going to be um, kind of high-level strategic bombing. And it's another way to say it, I guess, is we're going to bomb the cities until there's nothing left is what's working well in Europe. And we're going to try to do that on, on the Japanese main islands. Saipan puts us in range of being able to start doing that. Remember, taking these other islands, it it hurts the Japanese, but it hurts the Japanese because we're one step closer to their mainland. If the United States were to stop after taking the Gilbert Islands, it's not that big of a loss for the Japanese Empire. If we were to stop after taking the Marshalls or maybe even the Solomons, it's not that big of a loss for the Japanese. When we get into the Marianas, it's going to be a big loss for the Japanese. It's going to turn the tide of the war. And what's interesting in the Battle of Saipan is there's a a singular event that we're going to talk about today with Captain Ben Solomon. That's a kind of a culminating event within the Battle of Saipan that also serves as this larger tipping point within the Second World War altogether. So Battle of Saipan kicks off on June 15th, 1944, with American forces landing on the island. It's going to be um, Marines and Army. All in, about 71,000 will take part in the battle against an estimated on or about 32,000 Japanese on the island. It's going to be pretty nasty fighting, all in about a three-week fight. But by early July, July 6th, really July 5th, July 6th, the Japanese are, there's no hope of, of victory at this point. They're down to, 
you know, we'll, we'll say the last 4,000, 4 to 7,000, I think is a fair number. Yeah, more than 4,000. So we'll say 4 to 7,000 remaining. Something of note during the Battle of Saipan, right as it was kicking off, it surprised the Japanese leadership. And they thought um, that this might be the time while Americans are, while we're busy landing at Saipan, they could send their strike force and deal this decisive blow while we're tied up trying to attack an island. And maybe they could, you know, stunt the progress of the U.S. military. What results is the Battle of the Philippine Sea, which is a, a disaster in terms of losses for the Japanese empire. And it's at a point in the war where they're not going to be able to recover. So I know often brought up in the second world war is talks of production capacity and how quickly the United States was able to churn out everything, fighters, bombers, landing craft, aircraft carriers, bullets. There's a big part here, but that's all in comparison to other things. And the Japanese were not churning out aircraft carriers and ships very quickly at all. So after Pearl Harbor, the United States, you know, think of it like, like two or, uh, like a scale moving one direction or the other, the Japanese really stunted the American progress right after Pearl Harbor, but the U S got after it so quickly and was able to build back up so quickly. That was really the time where the Japanese had the major advantage as the war progresses, we're churning out equipment at such a rapid pace at that above and beyond what the Japanese are able to do that we can replace things much quicker. So as they start to lose aircraft carriers and destroyers late in the war, as the U.S. is in, you know, getting closer and closer to the Japanese mainland, they're losing the ability to replace those in time to have any sort of defense. That's a major issue during the bat- following the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Really following that battle, which kicks off right after, the bat- right after Saipan, the Japanese lose the ability to resupply their islands because they don't have the offensive naval, naval capabilities really any longer. That means that the people on Saipan, the Japanese soldiers on Saipan, are going to have to fight to the death. There's not going to be any evacuation, like we saw at times from Guadalcanal. There's not going to be any resupply. There's not going to be any reinforcements. What they have is what they have. Fight to the death. Now, the United States continue to push the Japanese back, and they're clearing this island. And there, there comes a point by July 6th, like I said, where it's pretty clear that there's no winning for the Japanese. The U.S. holds the bulk of the island. They have reinforcements still flowing in. They, the, that beachhead that we always talk about being so, so critical um, is well-established, is well under control. There's there's really not any Japanese air attacks to speak of. The Japanese Navy has been dealt a rather decisive blow. It's mopping up procedures at this point, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy or or not deadly. Now, to talk about Captain Ben Solomon for a minute. He's a dentist. He's a trained dentist. But that doesn't mean he's only working on dental patients. During combat, during major operations like this, there's always going to be a short supply of people able to provide medical assistance. Solomon is trained enough in that capacity, more than your average soldier off the street or average Marine off the street, that he's going to be used in a lot of um, medical capacities as well, treating wounded and helping to um, stabilize patients when they come into the aid tent. There's still a need for dentistry, of course, but it's not like he's sitting on his hands until there's a dental patient in need. Now, those aid stations aren't 
you know, there, there's levels of care. You have to have something pretty close to the line to treat those patients so quickly to keep them alive before you can move them back to maybe more stabilized, more state-of-the-art-ish um, equipment and facilities offshore on the naval ships and then eventually further back out of the main line of the fight. But as we get into July 6th and 7th, Captain Solomon's pretty close to the front lines because that's, that's where he's needed. Now, he's in his tent monitoring some patients when on the morning of July 7th, the Japanese launched the largest bonsai attack of the Second World War. Now, the term bonsai attack, it's, it's, a, United, it's a U.S. term, and it's, it comes from some phrases the Japanese would yell as they were attacking. And part of that it sounded like bonsai. We pulled that part out, called them bonsai attack. We interchange it. Um, with the, the term suicide attack or suicidal charge, that's not how it was designed. That's kind of how they ended up um, taking place and kind of how they ended up working. But one of the, it, it was a full frontal assault is what it, it is. A bonsai attack is, you know, think of guys standing up, rushing directly at the enemy lines, trying to overrun the enemy lines. Not a whole lot of um, tactical use there, if you will. But, the reason they were doing that, it wasn't stupid. You know, we, we, we often look at this and say, how silly to charge a line like that. The Marines have machine guns and artillery trained on these, and, and the Army have machine guns and artillery and riflemen and mines and barbed wire. Why would you charge that? It's suicidal. And that's a lot of times where that term comes in, bonsai charge, suicidal charge. But it worked in the past. It worked when they were fighting in China because a lot of the Chinese soldiers were using bolt-action rifles. That takes a while to reload. A lot of the Chinese forces they went up against, maybe saying a lot isn't the right way to put it, but there were times where they went up against numerically superior Japanese Chinese forces, and they were able to overrun them because they couldn't fire their bolt-action rifles fast enough. So it's worked. They've seen success. They've seen success as a last-ditch measure because bolt-action rifle or Automatic rifle or machine gun is still dangerous to stand up and charge directly at the enemy. But if you're starting to run out of options, look, it's worked in the past. If you don't have anything else working in your favor, maybe you give it a go. The bonsai attack on the morning of July 7th, 1944 is, like I said, the largest of the Second World War. It's going to be about 4,000 people, people because there are soldiers and civilians included in this mix. It is not 4,000 able-bodied Japanese soldiers, you're going to see people moving towards the American lines and on crutches, uh, bandaged, uh, people missing um, arms, seriously wounded, on the verge of dying, that are uh, walking or crutching into a devastating volume of Marine artillery, machine gun, Marine and Army. I, I keep just saying Marine, but Marine, Army, machine gun, artillery, rifle fire, and it's, it's devastating. I mean, the initial ranks of this bonsai attack are just mowed down. But, like I said earlier, there is a there is a chance of success with these attacks. And in the first few minutes, stretching into the first few hours, this ends up being a 15-hour fight to repel this bonsai attack. 15 hours of brutal, brutal close-range fighting. They overrun parts of the American line. Now... They may not have been able to completely secure the island, but they're able to at least start to take back some territory. They're overrunning American positions in that morning. I want to say there's 650 Americans killed. Remember, we're talking about mop-up operations. 
we're at a point where the Japanese can't win the war on this island. They can't win the battle on this island. So to lose 650, it's awful. It's tragic. It's it's a pretty sizable number for a battle that would cost the lives all in of 3,400. So that's a pretty good chunk in a pretty nasty few hours, 15 hours really, on the morning of July 7th. Now, Captain Solomon is in his aid station treating patients as this attack kicks off, and he starts to see more and more wounded come his direction. You know, this is something that now we can look back. We have the luxury of looking back in the history books to say, well, here's what happened. It was 4,000 and they charged over the lines. At the time, it was just chaos because people like Ben Solomon blink and there are Japanese soldiers in his tent bayoneting the wounded. I don't know that he got reports that the American lines are being overrun and there's a man in the corner in a Japanese uniform bayoneting his patients. They're sitting on the tables. That'll give you a jolt. Figure out what are you going to do now? Well, Captain Solomon picks up a rifle. Now he's a non-combatant, right? He's a medical person. He's medical personnel. He, he's, he's listed as a non-combatant. He picks up a rifle, defend his patients, shoots the man dead, shoots the Japanese soldier dead, gets back to work. Continues to work on his men, trying to treat the wounded. Now more and more wounded are coming in and, and something's triggered. Something's not right. And he's starting to get reports that the American lines are being overrun, but he stays at his station treating the wounded. Eventually, he looks over, and there's Japanese soldiers trying to crawl underneath the tent. Trying to crawl underneath to get into the wounded and continue. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. There's not a front. There's no longer a front line. There's just chaos. There's just combat happening in every direction. He kills a few that are trying to crawl into the tent. At that point, he says, this is, this is getting out of control. It's time to go. He orders the wounded, those who can, to evacuate. Move to a spot further back in the rear. Get away from the front lines. Get away from this aid station that's at, at risk of being overrun. And he's going to hold the ground. He's going to provide rear guard action and stand the gr- stand his ground, put to not necessarily push back to it, but at least provide a defense for the wounded to move out. Some of these guys, you know, if they're shot in the arm, might be able to get up and move pretty quickly. But there's plenty that have chest wounds, abdominal wounds, um, maybe missing a leg or part of a leg, and and they can't move fast. So what Solomon is doing is putting himself in harm's way so that these wounded soldiers and Marines that can't move very quickly have the opportunity to get out of harm's way. Remember, it was just moments ago the Japanese soldiers were bayoneting wounded Americans that couldn't get off the, couldn't get, um, couldn't defend themselves. So Solomon steps out of the tent facing the Japanese attack. They, they at least generally know the direction it's coming from. So he steps out facing the attack and promptly comes across a machine gun position that all of the uh, gunners have been killed. So he steps behind the machine gun and opens fire. He is at this position firing into the attacking Japanese soldiers for an unknown period of time. This is the type of battle where there's not a lot of accounts of exactly what happened. And this is, this is one of them. We can look back and piece together what happened. Um, but the point of Captain Solomon staying back and fighting was to allow his men to survive and to evacuate. So his men can't tell us what he did. What we know after the battle ended is that Captain Solomon at the age of 29 was killed during the fight. When he was found in that machine gun position, his body had 76 bullet wounds and an estimated upwards of 24 bayonet wounds. Lying around his position were 98 dead Japanese soldiers. 98. 
That's not talking about the guys he shot in the tent or the ones he shot trying to get into the tent. So well over 100 for a U.S. Army dentist. Supposed to be a non-combatant, right? Like I said, Solomon, Captain Ben Solomon died in that attack. And, well, to, to talk the attack at, at a little higher level, it, it would eventually be repulsed. The Almost every one of those bonsai attackers was killed. It was a devastating loss. It was a horrible series of events, horrible battle for all involved, but it pretty well wiped out the rest of the Japanese resistance on the island. So, um, you know, rather than that dragging on for another two months, it happened in a morning, um, but the casualties were staggering for a morning for both sides, 650 Americans and, and you know, 4,000 on or about Japanese. That's, that's a lot of death in a small area. But the attack would be repulsed and they would go on within days to call the battle complete. And from, from Saipan, the Americans would begin bombing mainland Japan. Now, for his actions that day, Captain Ben Solomon was put up for Medal of Honor. Sounds about right. I think it meets the criteria, don't you think? He's, he's giving his life. He's standing in the line of fire to defend patients that can't defend themselves. He's, he's holding his post against an onslaught of Japanese soldiers, killing almost 100 by himself in a role that he's really not supposed to fill. He's just stepping up and doing what's needed of him to protect his guys. But Captain Solomon is not combatant. And it's very hard to the, – the initial pushback was how do we give an award – to somebody who's supposed to be a non-combatant for picking up a weapon and killing a lot of enemy soldiers. So it was declined. It was declined for a long time. And it, it there were some back and forths for a little while there. And then there was some debate around, I think they ended up amending part of the Geneva Convention where it's, there's a non-combatant can defend themselves or a, a medical personnel can defend themselves, but they're not supposed to take part in, in an offensive operation. So it gets amended. They look back at it and it wasn't until, um, it would have been in 2002, finally. So what, 70 years later on or about Captain Ben Solomon's award is upgraded by then president Bush to the medal of honor. In turn, Captain Solomon is one of only three dentists to receive the medal of honor, which personally, when I heard that said one of three, it shocks me that there's one, but there's three. Um, pretty impressive company for him to keep, and pretty awesome, um, pretty awesome guy to do what he did to to not stop treating his wounded, to to hold his ground, let those guys that are having trouble walking, running, crawling away from this deadly Japanese onslaught, to instead put himself in that line of fire and and do his absolute best for as long as he could to allow his guys to get to safety. And in turn, posthumously, although it took years and years later, would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.